Welcome to the Delish Guestless Podcast, a deep dive into the lives and work of Hong Kong's crazy food and beverage industry leaders, hosted by the Beat Asia Publication. This episode, we sit down and chat with Amit Oz and Celine Heron, founders of successful bean-to-bar company Conspiracy Chocolate, a dedicated company to researching, developing, and producing innovative flavors in Hong Kong. The entrepreneurial Israeli-Swiss couple joined their brains four years ago to drive their passions in food and nutrition to give Hong Kong a name brand in the global cocoa market. Listen to their incredible story now, only on the Delish Guest List. Thank you guys for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Your Hong Kong story goes back a while. You know, you've grown up here with your family. You came in 2014 as a young woman to study for an exchange. What's keeping you around 10 years later in a long time? Oh, you know so much. (laughs) (laughs) We've done our research, of course. I can see. I I mean, you you grew up here, so. Oh, the question is what's keeping me here? What, what, What kept you here? Well, this place is awesome. Yeah, there's so much opportunity here. There's so much, uh, there's so many different people. Everyone you meet here is here for a reason. Uh, no, no one accidentally ended up in Hong Kong. So there's, everyone's got a cool story. I think from a food perspective, people here know how to put down the chopsticks and pick up a fork very, very easily. So you can do a lot. In one way, Hong Kong is always the same. But in, in a, another way that I think if you look at a place you grew up in, a place you came from, for me, it's Israel or you know, for some people, it's other countries. It's very rapidly, like every day there's something here. It's really hard to leave this place. It's very sticky. It pulls you back. Do you think F&B in your lives intertwined comes with a bit of fate? Is it a story of fate with Conspiracy Chocolate? Or is it that stickiness, quite literally, that brings you to push this above and beyond at Hong Kong? Well, my family is still here. Mm. They haven't left. I think it was mainly born from a common curiosity around food. I think that fate has a part in it because mm. I've always been part of it and I tried to get out of F&B. That's true. And I, I got, got pulled back. into it. Yeah. But we've both from cooking backgrounds in the sense that we've come from cooking families. So my grandma cooks, my mother cooks, my brother cooks, not professionally, but forever we've been cooking with my grandma and my mom and same for you with your grandfather who had a restaurant. So you also like grew up in that environment where you were eating onions in the garden and helping your mom chopping vegetable from a, a young age, right? Yeah, and running around the restaurant kitchen. Yeah. What sort of cuisines were prominent in your lives back in your home countries? Oh, Switzerland is weird. Uh, my family never cooked Swiss food because Swiss food is, is melted cheese and potatoes, really. <laughs> um, so we don't actually eat like that in Switzerland. Uh, for the most part, I'd say we're mostly influenced by French cuisine, uh, Italian, and Mediterranean as well. And yourself? Mediterranean, heavily Mediterranean. Every meal is two salads and some stuff. But then age 10, uh, we moved to China. And wow, there's so much new food. And at first, it's a bit scary. It's a bit like, oh, I'm going to try these things. Uh, but Korean food was the way I started trying food that I don't understand. It was the first food that I didn't see anything like it before that I was like, but it just smells so good. I have to try it. And once uh, I got that gateway cuisine, you could say, uh, I got really into Asian cuisine and living in Hong Kong. You could say the spectrum between something that's 
you've never heard of, you'll never, you've never seen before if you haven't grown up here, to something that is, you know, sausages and potatoes. And it's, it's a whole range in between. So it's very easy to kind of be anywhere on this range. So I, I, I'm in love with Japanese food, but who isn't? I'm rooted in Mediterranean food, for sure. It's the healthiest. You can always eat it. Um, it it's easy to crave. It's easy to fill up on. Uh, there's huge variety, very fresh. Hot, in hot weather, it's perfect. So, you know, I don't know if Switzerland is hot. I'm going to assume not no. all year round. <laughs> Israel is a very temperate um, place. You've got the heat. You've got the sun. But is it that love for Mediterranean that brought you guys to the flavors of chocolate to create these recipes to really bring conspiracy chocolate to a bit more of this sort of uniqueness? I'd say so, yeah. So but both of us are not big dessert people. Selene uh, more, more than me. Uh, we don't eat a lot of dessert. We came into this with saying, what can we bring from savory food into chocolate? Um, and a lot of that is Mediterranean. So the spices, the preparations, the flavors, the contrast in flavors. Yeah, I'd say it's, it's a lot around flavors. And, and we're very different cooks, right? You're all about the science, researching ingredients, how they play together, the, the different compounds of the flavor and why they work together. Whereas I taste and I'm like, oh, this will work together. So I think there's also this complementarity and this desire to explore flavor and see how far you can push it within the realm of chocolate, which is really both uh, sweet and savory. The, the story of conspiracy chocolate comes from your story being in corporate environments. Is chocolate a safe space to have this sort of structure that, you know, this is how we're going to get the beans to the bar, but then we can be creative inside the bar itself? I'd say once you have your basics right, because the basics are a lot. It's, I, I like to compare it to winemaking just with more steps. Uh, if you look at mixology versus winemaking, in mixology you've got many, many, many skills. Most of them you can learn in a day. But you can spend many years learning all these skills. Winemaking, you'd have very few skills, but you can spend a lifetime learning this short number of skills. So in chocolate, to make the chocolate before, if you're doing it from bean to bar, if you're not buying your chocolate, yes, you, in one way you can't get it wrong and you can, there's lots of safety in being playful. But in another, there is a, like in wine, it, it's like people say we're not pretentious about it, but really there's a lot of stuff we do expect from a chocolate before you start putting stuff inside it. And if you do that, before the chocolate's ready for it, if the baseline is not great, everything else is you're just playing around. So once you have your basics right, once you really understand the the roasting, the fermentation, these early stages, and you have a solid chocolate that you're really proud of, it can take a lot of variety. It can because the flavor is so complex, it can pair with so many different things. For our listeners that don't know how chocolate is made and usually buy it in a supermarket and don't really give a thought to that, what is the whole process? So if, if I'm a good cacao farmer that makes bean to bar grade chocolate, first decision I'm making is terroir. It's where is my farm going to be? What's the natural effects? What are my companion plants? What's the soil like? What's the seasonality like? What's the humidity? And once I've chosen that, I need to choose my genetics of the trees. And ideally, I'm going with genetics that complement each other in flavor during fermentation and also protect each other from things like disease and things like the environment so that I don't need to apply also chemicals on them for them to give me a healthy plant. Then comes, uh, I guess, harvesting, taking out the beans from inside the pod. You can think of the beans as kind of like the seeds of a mangosteen, only that the seed is a bit bigger, but the fruit itself, the stuff around the seed, 
uh, tastes a lot like mangosteen actually when it's fresh. If you were eating in a fresh pod, you would be eating the flesh and spitting out the beans. I, I, I don't, I like the beans, but most people would find them bitter, especially before fermentation and roasting. And so the next step is fermentation. So you take out the beans and you put them into a big box, a big wooden box that's lined with banana leaves. And what's interesting here is that two boxes sitting next to each other. One is getting a bit more sunlight through a crack in the window. Another one, the guy mixed a little bit longer. And so fermentation amplifies everything it experiences. So these two boxes will give us quite different cacao that we need to then work with quite differently. The next step, after fermenting for about seven days, the beans. And by the way, this is not the kind of fermentation you do for beer where you kill all the yeast and bacteria and introduce a specific strain in a, in a sterile environment. In cacao, it's what we call a wild fermentation where the yeast comes naturally from the pod, meaning every pod brings its own yeast and bacteria that does whatever they want to do. If, if cacao falls off the tree, it will start fermenting just like it would in the box. It's just that the box gives it enough volume to raise the temperature, to do the, the chemical reactions it wants to do because it can gather enough in one place. Once the fermentation is done, we then dry. Now, for a second, if I'm the same farmer on two different patches of land across the road from each other, because of the differences in humidity and in height of the soil, density, whatever, I'm fermenting a little bit differently. If I'm this, on the same patch of land, but I'm two different farmers, the farmer here is an engineer. He chooses to build a hut out of wood and give it a tin roof and put the boxes facing the door, which is mostly open or whatever. All these factors really change. So the far farmer and the location are both big factors in what comes out of fermentation. Then drying needs to happen in natural conditions. If I do it in a machine, it's going to take the flavor from the machine or the other reactions that happen in taking it to that machine. So it gets laid out in the sun, ideally just like fermentation in the shade of the trees that grew it really right there. And in the dry season, that means drying right with sunlight. In the wet season, it's a longer drying period uh, because of the greenhouse setup. It kind of traps the heat in and it takes a little bit longer to dry but keeps the rain out. And in this, fermentation goes further into drying and we get more umami, more cheesy, more sour notes, more fermented notes that I actually like more from the wet season. If you are in a country where it's, it's too humid to, to be able to dry in natural conditions like that, say you're making something very similar, whiskey in Scotland, you would need to, to use smoke to dry the, the grain. Very similarly, some cacao farms what we consider a part of the terroir is the smoke flavor because you need to smoke something to dry it. In our farm, that's not the case. Once the cacao has been fermented, dried, it's then stable enough to ship. And that's when it arrives with us in Hong Kong for the next step for roasting. So once we uh, receive the cacao, it goes to our factory in Wonshukheng. And we work with an expert coffee roaster. There is actually a few units um, below us. And he will assess the cacao and start the roasting process. Differently to coffee, cacao has to be adjusted with each different bags. And even within the bags, there will be some uh, difference. This is because even within one pod, you have different DNA. So different beans will taste slightly differently. So it's a bit of a headache for, the, uh, for our friend, the roaster. <laughs> uh, but I think he's enjoying it now. Um, and he will define the profile uh, depending on the humidity of the beans, of the fermentation level, the dryness level. And roasting, it really depends on your bean. You can go quite um, 
medium, like darker roast, and you get more chocolatey, brownie, nutty flavors, more caramelized. Or you can go lighter to retain the fruity floral notes of the cacao. Um, for us, we kind of change depending on the season and depending on the on the bag. Uh, so when we make chocolate, we have to taste along the way always to to see what we want to tweak. And there is many places we need to to tweak. So roasting would be one. After roasting, we need to separate the um, shells from the nib. So we call the cacao husk is the the cover of the nib. We don't use this for production, but we actually uh, use it for tea. Or we work with some bartenders or beer makers that they use to to flavor the beers to make it into a chocolate beer because the, um, the husk has a lot of aroma, but not much flavor. So once we have the nib isolated, we grind it into large stone grinders. And this is cool because it's the same way um, that the Mayans made chocolate 5,000 years ago. It's the same uh, volcanic rock. And we use the same grinding motion over two to three days, depending on the cacao and depending on the result we want to achieve. And these stones will both refine the particle size of the cacao, making it uh, smooth to the tongue and making your palate able to taste all the flavors. But it will also develop the, the flavor. So if you bite into a nib, it's a sharp flavor, a very short flavor. And as you grind it, it will open up, it will smoothen, become more round. Uh, so we edit the flavor how we want with the with the grinder, also playing with heat and playing with air. Then we add the sugar at these steps, grind it further, and the last step is tempering. And this is where we switch. And we have some, uh, we age the cacao as well for about a month. This is to stabilize the flavor because once the cacao comes out from the grinder, the chocolate comes out from the grinder, it's full of flavor, but it's kind of everywhere. So after a month, it will be more stable, more harmonized. And at this step, we this is where we flavor the bar uh, and temper. Tempering is the process of transforming chocolate from liquid to solid. So when you have a bar, what, what's enjoyable about it is that it melts in your mouth, but not in your hands. And this is the process um, that we call tempering. We play with um, temperature to set the crystal found in the cacao butter in a certain shape so that it stays uh, solid and stays together. Um, and at this stage, we, we flavor the bar, so there's different ways to flavor the bar. We can either put flavor inside the grinder and grind it with the cacao, so the flavor is really throughout, but maybe more subtle. We can mix it in uh, before tempering. Or we can also sprinkle in it. There's also different ways of uh, flavoring that we use, like um, aging or infusing the flavor, then straining it out. And that really depends on, on the flavor profile we're trying to, to create. It's Ruben here, the delish guestless host, to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by the Beat.Asia, the fastest growing regional publication for local F&B news, daytime and nightlife happenings, youth culture, and more. So be sure to check us out at thebeat.asia. Now, let's get back to Amit and Celine. So nearly five years ago, after you've created Conspiracy Chocolate, is it the idea that you want to bring both sides of you know Israeli cooking culture and Swiss cooking culture together? Was that the aim? Because the partnership between you two is an Israeli and Swiss love. But was that love also carried through in chocolate? Um, I think we bring our backgrounds into it, but it's mainly a, a blend of 
two styles <laughs> of uh, approaching food and, and cooking and just the desire to see what we can do with chocolate because uh, chocolate is such a broad canvas. So we didn't only play with chocolate, right? We made, uh, I mean, you got deep into pasta, but we, <laughs> we made a lot of different foods, but chocolate is really the one that sticked and we, we got so deep into it because there's so much to learn and we got really interested in the in both the, the science, the art, and the whole education around being to bar. And I think we really fell into a, a deep, deep hole where we're still in today. I'm trying to think where the where the Swiss side came in, because it's very easy to point at certain spices and go, yeah, that comes from the Middle East. And I think that, first of all, you, you know a lot about what people expect from chocolate. Mm. I think some of the ingredients we use, the hazelnut, the, the very traditional European ingredients, uh, you bring a set of like it needs to be at least this good. Yeah, I think there is a um, there is a Swiss tradition around our chocolate. Like if you walk around Switzerland, you can see all the chocolate shops. Everyone is tempering in the window. You can buy blocks of chocolate, and like you grew up in Switzerland eating a lot of a lot of chocolate. But obviously, as a kid, your palate is not so developed, so you don't necessarily understand what is good chocolate, what is bad chocolate. And it's only when you grow older and, and if you're interested in, in food and finer flavors that I guess you you get into it. But there is this this tradition. And when I went back to Switzerland to learn more about uh, bean-to-bar chocolate and, and the process of bean-to-bar chocolate, I went to this old um, chocolate factory called Cahiers in the canton of Fribourg, which is very far from where I live in the in the mountains. And they teach you the the history of the of the company and like the Swissness, like where where the Swiss element comes into chocolate. Because obviously cacao doesn't grow in Switzerland, but it was then transformed in Switzerland. I thought the Swiss invented chocolate, but obviously it's not true. <laughs> it's much older than this. We just basically added milk to it, which is a bit sad. <laughs> but um, yeah, you you understand more the the tradition of of chocolate making for for Switzerland and why we're so hooked up on, on chocolate as Swiss people, I guess. It's funny that you say Swiss people didn't invent chocolate. Israeli people didn't invent chocolate. Neither did Hong Kong people invent chocolate. No. But Amit and Celine, how are you reinventing chocolate in Hong Kong? Because I think there's a few, if not none, bean-to-bar operators in Hong Kong that create artisan chocolate. Why are you guys so special? So there are a few. There are a few. Um, there are a few, and, and they are all special. And we, we're lucky to have really great competition in Hong Kong. We have some really good chocolate makers here. We didn't invent chocolate, Not neither did our countries. It's one of the ancient foods. It's uh, almost as old as wine. It's To me, it's in the same category as beer, as bread. It's one of those things that have always been with humans. It's a part of human cuisine. And I guess when we started, people were asking us, okay, 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 so using Vietnamese beans, and you're in Hong Kong, and you're Swiss, and you're Israel. Can we just call it Swiss chocolate? We said, no. Can we call it Hong Kong chocolate? I guess that's the closest answer if you're trying to put one country on it. But what we're trying to do that's special is forget about putting a brand on it uh, for a second, so calling it a Swiss or a Belgian chocolate, or because these styles are basically established by uh, Industrial Revolution giant companies that dominated the previous generation of chocolate making. We're looking at how to go from, again, similar to wine, how to go from a terroir, from the flavors that occur naturally by the soil, by the, the humidity, by the bacterial ecology of, of one place, not just in the way the plants grow, but also in the way that uh, cacao ferments in that same environment. Meaning if you move it to ferment in a different environment, if you bring it to Hong Kong to do that step, if you move it 
to another farm down the road that does it in big batches. It's not the same thing. So we, we try to bring out that um, pure origin of, in our case, Dak Lak, Vietnam. It's a region in Vietnam. It's a coffee-growing region. Uh, we try to bring out the work that the farmer is doing and get out of the way to be able to really uh, see through all the processing a chocolate goes through, where it started, and what we what make special with it. When we started, we started because we tried looking for chocolate with flavors inside it that we couldn't find. Little did we know that this whole category exists. But lucky we didn't find out, right, because we got to do this. Uh, so we bring in outside ways of thinking of this because we come from a savory, not from a pastry background. And you have norms inside pastry and you have rules inside pastry. And there's things that you shouldn't do vegan. We're now, uh, for Easter, putting out a vegan dolce de leche. That's not a vegan product naturally it's obviously a design to be made with milk but then taste it tell me it's bad oh it doesn't do the thing the dolce de leche does it still has the slow cooking element still takes three hours to make it uh you still get the slow caramelization and the complexity so we, we bring a lot of innovation in that way in the way of looking at things from a new perspective and what i, I would love to say we're special for but we're not because other people are doing it is the bean to bar concept of putting the farmer on the pedestal and saying what we hear is to, to show the, the natural cacao. It's, molecularly speaking, more complex than red wine in flavor. There's so much more that it can be than what people know it, should, it to be. So what we're trying to do is tell that story really well. So all of the branding stuff, all of the, the fun packaging and the flavors that pair with it and all the ways we're dressing it up and the ways we work with different restaurants and different chefs to push the envelope and what can be done with it is just ways to tell that story better to different people and to more people. So you guys have been in Asia for more than two decades combined for both of you guys. Speaking on the element of sustainability, is it the idea that you are sourcing semi-locally in the region for Vietnam? Is that important for driving a bit more of the Asian voice with Conspiracy Chocolate? And also, you know, not so much having the focus being we're going to have this international sort of carbon usage for the product. We want to, you know, maintain a bit more of a, uh, a respect to the planet as well, creating this product. I mean, you brought our age into this in a moment there, with how long we've been here. We're two millennials that started a business. Sustainability <laughs> is in, in the cornerstone of all of this. So choosing to go with cacao that is grown in Asia, uh, we were very tempted to start with South American cacao. That's the starting point for everybody. I, I, I don't know of a chocolate maker in Hong Kong or in Asia that doesn't work with South American cacao. It is the, the gold standard. Um, and people know how to work with it, you know, to, what to expect of Peruvian cacao, of, of you know, um, certain regions. I think in Asia there is a lot of really good cacao. The cacao that made it here didn't pass through the genetic modification that humanity did to cacao in Africa that made it taste chocolatey. Uh, it came around the other way, around the other side of the globe by the Spanish into the Philippines. And from there we got the original very fruity, very earthy, very uh, complex flavors of the original South American cacao. So there are some awesome flavors here. Uh, more and more farmers are learning how to turn what they thought previously was a commodity product into a terroir product, charging more for it, spending more energy, more time, more love into it, making it a more expensive product that they can live off, but also making it something that we can work with. I think that Asia has a lot, a lot to offer in terms of cacao, but that's not the only thing we do for sustainability. Almost everything we do is aimed at making sure that we do it the right way before we get big. So by the time that we do, it's easy. So, uh, it's harder to get big and then change things. So you're speaking on the idea of getting big. What was the challenges of starting it? 
We really started uh, at home. So we started very small by doing Sunday markets. Um, the, the original plan was really to make chocolate for ourselves. <laughs> um, and we shared it with some friends and some friends pushed us to, they wanted to buy it from us and, and they pushed us to create a business plan. So we made a business plan and then we started little markets here and there, you know, Tongchong Street Market, Discovery Bay. Um, and we sold it to uh, one shop downstairs. <laughs> we brought it and I remember the, the shopkeeper was like, no, it's not good enough. <laughs> Come back when it's good. So we kept uh, improving, trying to to make it better. And one day he he agreed to keep it. And this is this was and our he, first. He's a French chef, so that was a big deal for us when he agreed to I mean, it. It could have been that we would have put out a way worse product and stayed with it this far if it wasn't for him. Uh, testing us in the beginning, actually, yeah. he pushed you guys. Yeah, so yeah. that was the first shop in the in the neighborhood, and then we just grow from the neighborhood and went out and knocking on doors and see if they wanted to stock our chocolate. And Thankfully, we, it's a it's a quite easy product to sell because everybody loves chocolate, so we would give it out to taste, and they will they were quite eager to to try and sell it. Right at the start, we went out to the street in Sangpon where we lived at the time and held out a tray with chocolate. We said, okay, everyone that passes by, try some chocolate. And one person that passed by said, oh, this is really good. And I run the UBS market. Do you want to be in the UBS market? He said, yes. And that was the first time we got to sell chocolate to real people. I uh, left work during lunch and spent my lunchtime selling chocolate and then went back to work. And I was like, wow, this is a really strange hobby that I have now. I'm selling it. Uh, and then we decided to really go to market in 2019. And that just happened to be during the protest and we thought what could be worse than this <laughs> and then a global pandemic started <laughs> um and the whole time there was this feeling in the first year that like we're just about to get out of this thing uh so if you're asking us what were the hurdles in the beginning at scaling at going from tiny to small definitely that everyone tightened their wallets and didn't go for luxury stuff and especially that means restaurants and we are first and foremost a chocolate maker not a chocolatier. We're, we also chocolatier. We work with the ingredient chocolate, sure, but we're here to make the ingredient chocolate, meaning we need to work with people who are creative with chocolate, aka chefs. And chefs could not take risk on new stuff in the past three years. They had a really rough run. And that's been one of the one of the biggest hurdles for us, that we're putting out stuff that's pretty radical, that's pretty unique and different. And you could say it's on the luxury end of the budget. And to get people, to specifically industry people, to be willing to take the chance on us. It was a lot of, once we get out of this, then things are going, then we can try something new like this. And actually now that Hong Kong is looking a lot brighter, we're finally seeing the other side of that. And we are, people are taking more chance on us and these hurdles are finally passing. But so far it's been the hurdle of how do you survive in a place like Hong Kong where rent is high, where everything is really expensive as a company that's tiny, not small yet. And where our buyers are suffering so much and we can't push them to do anything different. We need to support them and uh, allow them to take small risks at a time. Do you think the idea of you know, building yourself up as a startup in Hong Kong has been favorable for your growth? It's a small city. You know, everyone knows everyone. Everyone has a story to tell about the time that they met someone else. Is it a good place to do business for chocolate makers? I would say for every food business, it's a it's a good environment. Especially when we first started, we were quite surprised by the amount of people who were willing to help us. Remember, we were trying to import some cacao and we had no idea how to do this. 
And one guy was like, oh, you can use my DHL account. <laughs> like a guy we've never met before. And then we had um, Larry lending us his kitchen in Saimpun for a while. Um, so I think from the beginning, we had a, a lot of help and a lot of people willing to to just help us kickstart this this adventure. I don't know many countries in the world where you could put chocolate with oolong tea in it and people wouldn't blink twice. But Hong Kong, like I said in the beginning, no problem to switch cuisine. Very, very easy place to introduce new radical things here. Mm-hmm. It is a small city. We have a lot of education to do. We need to teach people what good chocolate actually is and what it isn't. Sustainability plays a role in that, but first and foremost, it's flavor. And in a city that's bigger than this, you would be hard to touch such a percentage of the population by doing events and tastings and workshops. That part is big. Uh, I think Hong Kong also has, still has a big standing in Asia. And if you can make it here, it says something. Um, in, in the way that, for example, if you're selling a food product in Tokyo, it says something. So if, if we manage to make it here, I think that uh, what, getting out of here is, it's, we're visible being here. Uh, people here, they're, they're ready to try new stuff. There's not a conservatism when it comes to flavors and food. And people already love craft beer, sourdough and coffee. So chocolate is, is next, really. <laughs> <laughs> so chocolate is next. What education is required? What sort of stuff do you need to teach people about conspiracy chocolate and this sort of craft chocolate, bean-to-bar chocolate? We can use a lot of parallel from the, from the coffee well that I think people already understand, the single origin. Um, it seems single origin coffee is, is big in Hong Kong and, and people are um, amateur and, and coffee snobs. <laughs> so I think that plays into our favor. Um, then, of course, events, uh, chocolate tasting events, trying to uh, compare commercial and craft chocolate, not necessarily ours, but any type of bean-to-bar chocolate. And if you have them side by side, then people really light up and they can really understand the difference. I'll just add to Celine's answer that chocolate is not supposed to be bitter. Everybody expects dark chocolate to be bitter. And if you hate yourself, you like dark chocolate. And if you like yourself, you like milk chocolate that is sweet and creamy and uh, vanilla-y and delicious. But it's kind of the same comparison between good coffee and like chain coffee, like Starbucks and stuff. If you have a badly fermented product and the best version of roasting it is over roasted it's burnt burnt is bitter so most chocolate out there is over roasted but if you get a good product to begin with a good plant to begin with and you ferment it well and then you roast it responsibly you can bring out just like coffee really nice complex notes and it isn't bitter it's complex it's intense it's definitely an intense flavor that's why we add a bit of sugar to it just like with coffee but we don't need to make a milkshake out of it just like we do with, with bad coffee. Um, if you get a milk chocolate, 10%, 15% cacao, it's really just a milk candy flavored with cacao, as opposed to a dark chocolate where you can really taste one of the most healthy plants we know of. Um, so it shouldn't be bitter and it shouldn't be unhealthy. And it's part of what we, I think, are trying to get people to understand about chocolate. What is the, the penultimate sort of exit out of... Um out of uh, the pandemic, you know, you say that you've grown very locally in Hong Kong. You've worked with some very big brands, you know, Eaton Hotel, Rosewood K11. You worked with a number of hotels, a number of great chefs locally for the past three years to make do, you know, mm-hmm. to to make of what we've had. 
But what is the Asia journey for you now in 2023? You know, Hong Kong is buzzing. It's a light. The whole region is gearing up to do business again. Hmm. I think we're still very focused on Hong Kong. So we are exposing a little bit to Tokyo. We're exposing a little bit to Macau. Um, these are people that approached us. We haven't gone out looking for getting out of Hong Kong yet. Uh, we won't have a stable base here. We, we are still making very Hong Kong flavors. I think chefs here are looking for ways to, to do things in, in new ways, to, to push innovation, to uh, push new flavors, to challenge people to try new things. So we're still at the stage of uh, establishing these kind of uh, working relationships. Um, we, we are in, there's so many things we're dreaming of doing. We want to open our own F&B venue one day. We, are, we want to uh, maybe have a permanent shop. The, there's the touch points with the people in Hong Kong that we want to have. There's still a long way to go here. Uh, as for the rest of Asia, there is a growing appetite for bean to bar chocolate in Asia. If you look at when we started, there were two makers in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Now there's like, I can't count anymore. I think 12. I have no idea. In the rest of Asia, when we started, there was one, you could say, country-dominant bean-to-bar company in Vietnam. Now we're seeing them in so many other Asian countries. There's an amazing one in Thailand. In Taiwan, we're seeing some of the best chocolate I've ever had. Uh, Singapore has a company, Philippines. Um, all these places, these companies are, are getting this big because people want that chocolate and they have local competition. I think that there are countries nearby us that... Um, Naturally, because people used to at least, and now we're again traveling in and out through Hong Kong quite a lot. People are hearing about us in, in these other places and bringing our chocolate to tastings, to events, to, uh, to cook with. Um, chefs are talking about it. And eventually, I think we are going to look at Thailand, at Singapore, at uh, Taiwan. We, we are doing a little bit of, you could say, business in these places, but really it's not yet business. It's baby steps. We're establishing relationships. We're getting people excited as much as we can in Macau. I think that this is going to be a gradual thing. I'm, I'm very focused on Hong Kong, but Asia-wise, because the appetite is here, it's, I think it's going to be pretty organic. We're not sure where, where next, but because we're really right out of pretty, a pretty rough stage and we're focused on making things really great right now. Beautiful. I love the answers you guys gave for the questions as well. You know, telling the story of the Israeli and Swiss mm. journey, not the Israeli and <laughs> no, 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 I don't like that. Um, but we're going to take a bit of second just to correct our postures, maybe yeah. drink a bit of water, and then we're going to go into our um, rapid fire questions. All right. So you've got uh, 15 questions you can't think, mm-hmm. just got to say, no preparation, cool. some fun stuff, and uh, yeah, be creative. You have uh, 30 minutes to create dinner tonight. What are you guys making? Oh, 30 minutes. I was going to say lasagna, but no, that takes five hours. No, 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 no. <laughs> 30 minutes. Who are the guests? Are they, do they have... Just you two. Just us? You are the guests. I'll make Alexa. That's less than 30 minutes. Perfect. Well, there's so many options. Oh, <laughs> oh, my God. He's not good with cooking quick. <laughs> Should we go to the next question or... No, he'll wow. make it a cabbage salad with a tahini dressing. No. Yes. I, no, Israeli yes. salad, maybe, maybe pasta. Um, okay, best. If it's for myself, it, it, it could just be Israeli salad and steak. But if there's other people, I'd add a pasta. Okay. Interesting. Do you put cottage cheese in your Israeli salad? <gasps> no, feta I'm though. Okay. I messed that one up. <laughs> <laughs> if you had to drink wine from one country for the rest of your life, where would it be and why? Italy. Oh, why? Um, the diversity of flavor 
and body. Honestly, I, I'm still a baby when it comes to wine. <laughs> I, I don't have opinions there yet. Oh, me too. Beach holiday or city trip? Beach. Beach. Easy. Why is chocolate so yummy? few words. It mm. tricks your brain. Is the question why is chocolate so yummy? Yeah. Oh yeah, it tricks your brain. It releases so much serotonin. Yeah. It's an aphrodisiac. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, Szechuan peppercorns. It has yeah. an awesome flavor journey. The flavors change every few seconds. And it stays solid right up to its melting point, then melts very rapidly, which is very pleasing. If you had unlimited money in your bank account right now, what restaurant are you opening up in Hong Kong? I think it's really. What about cacao-centric restaurants? Oh, that, that might happen. <laughs> that might happen. What restaurants and bars are you visiting on date night? 6 p.m. till whenever? It no normally ends <laughs> up being Chinese food. It, I wouldn't say it's our, it's our go-to, but it tends to be what we end up craving and we won't make it ourselves at home. So it's what we go out for. Or Indian. Yeah. Mm. What are your favorite Indian restaurants in Hong Kong? Oh man, we live in Lama. Okay. It's, it's, it's Spice Island. Spice That's Island, it. yeah. I've never been, but I should go. I should go, yeah. Uh, what is one food you used to love as a child, but now can never eat? Ketchup, can't stand it. I, I smell. hate ketchup. Thank you. Nobody else agrees with me. I'd say mayo. I used to love mayo. Wow. What is your favorite part about Cantonese cuisine, Cantonese food, the culture behind the eating? I said the energy in, in uh, small restaurants. That you can eat at any time of the day or night. I love that answer. Mm. What's your favorite city to eat in? Hong Kong. Yeah, it's going to be here. What about beyond Hong Kong? I need to travel more. Bangkok. Good. I don't know. Recently, recently relative to local to recent times, right? I've been to Lisbon. That was pretty good. It's just a lot of the same, but it's all cooked very well. <laughs> So where is 2023 taking you for travel then? If you say that you need to do a bit more. We are actually Israel. going. Yeah, we're going to Scotland and Israel. Yeah. Nice. Uh, hopefully, hopefully a trip Vietnam. to, okay, we want to check out the farm again. It's now been a long time since we've been there. I, I kind of want to check out Taiwan as well and see some cacao farms there and do it the same way we chose our farm in Vietnam. So take a backpack on and just go to as many farms that would let us in and try their cacao. You're adopting a farm, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, basically. Where in Vietnam is the cacao farm? In the center of the country, the wow. narrow center. Wow, wow, wow. Near Da Nang. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Inland. Beautiful. Up in the mountains. Yeah, it's called wow. Buon Matuot. Uh -huh. What is the best thing about Israeli and Swiss food culture? Is there anything good about Swiss food culture? <laughs> the diversity. <laughs> <laughs> you're not German, you're not French. Eating a fondue in a cold day in a mountain is pretty good. What about yourself, Amit? Oh, it's the colors and the smells. And for me, it's the meze. When you go to a restaurant and you haven't even looked at the menu yet, and there's like 20 delicious things in front of you. You just need to hold back and not fill up before the somehow even better food comes. I miss Israel so much. Mm. Oh, I'll add one more thing. The fact you can literally eat as much as you want Israeli food and you'll be okay. Like you're never going to get fat from it. Because it's lean. It's a lot of protein. Yeah. There's not much bread. So many plants and vegetables. It's mainly plants. If you could travel to one restaurant in the world and have dinner, where would you go? No, because they're clothing. <laughs> <laughs> have you guys been before? No. no. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about spending 500 US on one meal. Um, up until this point, what has been the proudest memory and moment of your F&B careers? Well, there's a few that I want to pull from, but I'm like, is that the one? I don't know. I think completely organically without us approaching or saying anything Richard Ekebus posting on his Instagram hey this is my new favorite chocolate and like a handful of like seven of our chocolate bars that, that was a cool moment mm. beautiful the first time we cracked tempering oh my god <laughs> oh the first time we managed to temper chocolate so it came out looking like chocolate 
Yeah, it's a hard process that a lot of people uh, suffer with. Well, if you say our F&B career is right, not maybe, maybe outside of chocolate. So r- right in the, on the theme of quitting my job, uh, I ran a private kitchen with Alison Tan called Otium. And the end of every night being like, well, people, people think I'm a chef. That was a cool, that was a cool feeling. In the end of every night, people actually thought we're, we are a legit real restaurant and, and they, you know, they were happy about the, the food they ate and the money they spent on it. What is one thing that you love about Hong Kong's food scene, but one thing that needs improvement on? Is recycling part of this food scene? Yeah, I'd say food waste. Yeah, that's, that's a painful that's one in the city. But what do you love about the food scene? All right. So many things. Uh, the the variety the i mean the sad thing is how often restaurants close here but how often they open afterwards yeah the variety the fact you can cross the road and go i mean doesn't it have to be the best restaurants in the world but you can try 30 different cuisines on one street in sangpun 30 high street yeah yeah Yeah. high street sangpun is good yeah we we, we lived right below it before so moving from there to lama it's like what are we going to eat tonight okay there's There's three restaurants (laughs) But you got to live on Lama anyway, so... You, yeah, exactly. We oh, win yeah. anyway. That's with okay. <laughs> What is the most underrated area in Hong Kong to, for dining? I like Tai Hang. Yeah, I was going to say I love Tai Hang. Great vibe. It is. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't offer too much, but it's, it's, you're in between the uh, mechanics and the taxi drivers and people who are napping on the side of the street. Yeah, it has its own vibe. Exactly. Really good ramen in Tai Hang. Yeah. Mm. And my final question. Wait, you know what? Can can actually change my answer there? Sure, 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 sure. I'm going back to Sangpun. Oh, the yeah. food scene in Sangpun. Because I, I moved there right around the time the MTR opened. I, I lived on Bonham Road before that. And when the MTR opened, I moved down into Sangpun. And I saw the transition where slowly more and more cool stuff's opening up. And that cool stuff is not competing with each other. There's so much creativity. There's a one place where the guy locks the door when you come in. He doesn't have a menu. He doesn't let you look into the kitchen. He just gauges by looking at you what to cook for you and what the budget should be. And he's got a cat in the restaurant. And not only the cat is in the restaurant, there's pictures of the cat <laughs> all over the walls. <laughs> and it's just one place. There's so much cool stuff like that in that neighborhood. Mm. I've seen that on Instagram. What is it? it there's no name in English, but <laughs> the, the name in Chinese is uh, translates for the moment. How perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a great space. <laughs> I feel like any Hong Kong restaurant that has celebrities on the wall someone's children on the wall or animals on the wall, you know it's going to be good. (laughs) What is uh, one thing that you guys are cooking in the next few months that you can share with us on the podcast? Okay, I didn't didn't know if if we would say this, but we are planning something. uh, Wow, is this this the announcement? I guess it is, yeah. So uh, we're we're planning a series of dinners this summer. Um, Fine dining dinners, wine pairing, the whole shebang. Uh, Only that. Cacao is in the center of every dish, uh, savory and, and uh, dessert as well. So you, you'll get savory dishes that have cacao in them. That's not what you expect it to be. It's not necessarily brown. It's not necessarily sweet. It doesn't necessarily taste like chocolate at all in all the different formats. We're putting a lot of waste products in there also because we're trying to highlight that food waste situation. Um, and we're really pushing ourselves and the same team of amazing superhero chefs that make our chocolate. Uh, are the ones that together with us will be cooking that meal. Uh, we're, we're really excited for this. It was, it was a uh, well-chosen question. <laughs> we, we did not intend to reveal this today. Well, it's going to be great. Yeah, it's, it's going to be great. And very, very few seats on this one. So if, if you're interested in this, uh, pay attention to our Instagram, I guess. And what is your Instagram? 
Our Instagram is Conspiracy Chocolate. Same with Facebook and website is conspiracychocolate.com. And in our website, if you are like me, a food nerd, there is so much to read. There's a health page and beside that in the blog, I really nerd out on a lot of topics, not just chocolate, but sugar and cooking and it's, it's worth looking at. But you won't disclose what conspiracy chocolate means, the name. That's still a conspiracy. We won't tell. You guys yeah. haven't figured that one out. We don't yet. answer that. Good. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>